You are listening to Middle East Monitor Conversations, bringing you lively discussions with prominent voices from the region and beyond as we delve deeper into issues shaping the Middle East and North Africa, from politics to culture and the arts. Hello, welcome to Memo Conversations. I'm a video producer, Osman Butt. My guest today is Kevin Jones. Kevin is an associate professor and director of undergraduate studies in the history department at the University of Georgia. He earned his PhD in history from the University of Michigan in 2013 and served as postdoctoral research fellow at George Washington University's Institute for Middle East Studies in 2013 to 2014 before accepting his current position at the University of Georgia. He is he has published two articles about Iraqi cultural history and Middle Eastern labor history in social history. His first book, The Dangers of Poetry, Culture, Politics and Modernity in Iraq, was published by Stanford University Press in September 2020. The book demonstrates the unique contribution of nationalist and communist poets to the cultural politics of anti-colonial and national liberation in 20th century Iraq. Kevin, welcome to Memo Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's our pleasure to have you. Um, I suppose the first question is kind of obvious. What, you know, you decided to obviously go and study poetry and specifically you were drawn to radical Iraqi poetry as your book shows. So could I ask what drew you to all of this? Yes. Um, it was, you know, I was drawn to poetry, I would say, in a, in a fairly roundabout fashion. Um, I, I was initially drawn to uh, to Iraq and to Iraqi history um, without necessarily having any interest in poetry. Um, I, I was I was drawn to Iraq in part because the the U.S. invasion began when I was an undergraduate and I was involved in some anti-war activism. Uh, and then when I started my PhD, uh, I knew I wanted to work on Iraq. This is obviously more than a decade and a half ago. Um, and I ran into the dilemma of, of how uh, someone in the U.S. can write about the history of Iraq in the mid to late 2000s, um, you know, with with the obstacles that that we would face at that time with with respect to sources. Right. Um, because the, this security uh, situation was, was not conducive to conducting research. Uh, the archives in Iraq were looted um, during the U.S. occupation. So, you know, it's unclear that there would have been sources there anywhere anyway. Um, and so the question is, like, how can you do the history of Iraq without just relying on the British archives or the U.S. archives? How can you take Iraqi voices into consideration? Um, and so, you know, I spent some time trying to think that through, how could I do this? Uh, and I started reading a lot of Iraqi memoirs um, to sort of get a sense of, of, you know, whether I would find uh, perspectives there that were significantly different than what you'd find in the British archives. Um, and, 
I was struck over and over again by how much Iraqi writers talked about poets and poetry uh, in their memoirs and the reflections of, of uh, life in the uh, early 20th century, early 20th century, mid 20th century uh, in Iraq. Um, so I, I began looking more into poetry um, and I always remember going into uh, the stacks at the library at the American University in Cairo and finding a little, a slim volume written by an Iraqi um, uh, critic in Arabic called something like the um, Poetry and the 1920 Revolution in Iraq. Uh, and I read through the book and it was this great collection of all of these poems that came out of this revolutionary moment. Uh, and it was all of these Iraqi perspectives that, that have been recorded and, and sort of memorialized um, that you don't find anywhere else. And it's like, a, it was this beautiful snapshot uh, of what, what people were talking about, what certainly what poets were writing about, but also what they were, what the words that they were speaking uh, in mosques and, and political rallies. Um, uh, and it, it, to me, it was just a, an amazing historical source that offered a kind of window or vantage point um, uh, into a particular aspect of Iraqi history. Yeah, it's quite interesting because obviously, you know, poetry is quite big in the Middle East generally. I mean, even today, right, you've got when you think about popular, you know, shows on television, you know, in the West, we obviously have musical shows people doing singing contests and you have that in the arab world but you also have popular poetry shows and iraq in particular has a very long tradition of poetry so perhaps you could perhaps tell us a little bit about what is the iraqi tradition of poetry and its social significance yes right uh, certainly poetry I, I would argue is the the dominant cultural form and has been for a long time uh, in the middle east as a whole uh, but in iraq more generally and it's a it's a, a question that I often uh, get from um, other historians, historians working outside the Middle East um, uh, in the U.S. And they're like, you know, so why was what's so important about poetry in Iraq or, you know, what's the comparison? What can we compare it to? And, and uh, you know, a, a repeated suggestion is, you know, is it like, uh, say, hip hop in, in contemporary America, where it's a cultural form that's genuinely popular um, and has kind of some some expression uh, of, of mass desires. And it's it's always I don't think that there is a perfect comparison to um, various cultural mediums in, in the West, uh, because, I mean, in, in kind of cultural historians in the West often draw this distinction between high culture and mass culture, right? The, the cultural forms of the elite, whether that's classical music, novels, opera, et cetera, and then mass culture, which would be, you know, popular songs, um, you know, television in, in some cases, uh, things that, that really speak to uh, broad kind of um, uh, social classes. And, and in my view, the, the unique, the really unique facet of poetry in Iraq is that the high culture, mass cultural divide is not relevant here, right? Because this is a uh, literary and cultural form that on the one hand is is kind of the pinnacle of high culture, right? I mean, these, the poets in the late Ottoman period uh, in Iraq were being given seats in the Senate, uh, even uh, later in the Hashemite monarchy, some of the prominent poets are, are given seats in parliament, right? So it's a kind of the, the recognition of a great poet is, is like, you know, the, the 
you're recognized as, as kind of man of the state, right? You have a, a very high position in, in society. On the other hand, it's not just high culture. It's not just a cultural form that only speaks to uh, the elite, uh, to, a, to a sort of very uh, highly educated literate audience, because poetry was an, an oral phenomenon. Uh, you don't need to be literate uh, to understand and to enjoy it. Uh, the, the kind of rhythmic and metric structures of poetry mean that it can be easily memorized and, and related from one person to the next, so it, tra it travels well. Um, and and the in, in Iraq in particular, there there was um, you know I've got all these anecdotes and stories of um, you know prominent famous poets you know sort of idolized for their their brilliance in neoclassical poetry, which sounds like high culture, but they're giving these. Uh, um, poetry readings in in big public demonstrations uh and there there's you know communist workers and peasants who are out there cheering and listening to every word right so it it's it's a kind of cultural phenomenon that that straddles every aspect of society it's quite interesting because when we talk about the distinction between high and low cultures this is a very post-enlightenment phenomenon we see in europe and i think there's this sort of expectation that every other culture must have had something similar Exactly. Right. And and it's, um, you know, it's right. It, it becomes difficult to uh, there's a tendency um, uh, among all historians or academics, no matter what part of the, the world you're you're working with to sort of to theorize everything. And, and you draw you draw on the sort of canonical theorist and the cultural historians would look a lot to uh, the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, who's written about the organic intellectual and um, uh very sort of cultural war of, war of positioning and whatnot. And, and you know, as, as influential and, and powerful as these theories are for, for understanding cultural phenomena uh, in Western Europe, in the US and elsewhere, they're, they're just not um, completely satisfying, right? It's in, impossible, I think, in some ways to impose that kind of theoretical framework that's drawn from a perspective of, of culture in, in the West and impose it on, on other contexts. There's an interesting question here would be then, since we're not obviously drawing on these theorists to understand this phenomenon, I'm sort of beginning to wonder, how does Iraqi poetry or Iraqi poets understand themselves and their own significance? That's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I think I would say for sure um, that that these the the prominent poets of this the kind of early 20th century period definitely saw themselves as spokesmen of the nation right they that they they weren't um you know there's there's a tremendous social responsibility as they saw it uh in the poetry that they're writing um and i i get into this to some extent in the first chapter of the book where there's um, in the, the late Ottoman period, uh, there's a big move of, of some of the prominent poets to to write about new technological developments, new scientific ideas and discoveries. And it's a, it's not really satisfying to me from an aesthetic perspective to read these poems. They're not particularly beautiful, but there's, you know, it's kind of a didactic poem that's here to like, I'm going to tell my audience about the train, right? What the, how the train moves, like, so they, they understand. So there's a sense that they see their, their job is to, to educate the people listening to their words. Um, uh, later on in the, 
in the colonial period and, and the post-colonial period, um, there's they, they certainly saw a responsibility to speak for uh, nationalist causes to, to educate their audience um, uh, about the kind of interest of the nation and the direction the nation should go or, or the kind of social uh, ramifications of policy, the, the meaning of Marxism, socialism, et cetera. Um, but yeah, so, so I think that there's, um, they certainly saw themselves, definitely if we, if we wanna stick with this contrast between how poets understood themselves in general in, in Western Europe or the United States, there's definitely more of a sense of, of social responsibility, uh, which is one that, you know, the, a, a lot of um, scholars talk about the, uh, the idea of commitment, iltazam uh, in Arabic, that, that comes out of the, the communist period, right? This, this uh, concept derived from Jean-Paul Sartre that says the artist or the intellectual, the poet has to be committed to the cause and the art itself that's being produced, the poetry has to be committed to a cause. In my view, is it's, this is not a particularly novel phenomenon in Iraq and the Middle East in general. That kind of commitment was always there. There was just a general expectation uh, that your poetry uh, was in the service of broader causes. It's, it, you, you don't need um, kind of Western Marxist philosophers to, to give you that, that concept. So you sort of alluded to the fact that we have this sort of periodization where we have late Ottoman, where they start to see the role as, you know, educating people about whether it's the railways or whatever. And obviously the big moment is in the 1920s as it comes under the British mandate. Um, so how did Iraqi poetry radically change during this period from previous periods? Great question. Um, so my belief is that, that the colonial situation fundamentally changed the dynamics of the poem, uh, in particular, the, the function of the praise poem, uh, which had always been an important part of the kind of Arabic poetry tradition. But in the colonial era, things changed dramatically um, for a few reasons. I mean, the, the big reason, the main reason is because all of a sudden under colonialism, the state is illegitimate. Right. So if you're if you're a poet who's expected to offer some praise, um, are you going to offer praise to the colonial figure? Um, if so, you're going to sort of be seen publicly as a traitor. And so most poets who did praise um, uh, the colonial state did so under pseudonyms. Uh, they did so un uh, anonymously, so they wouldn't suffer uh, backlash. But then you start to see, uh, in my view, one of the biggest changes comes under King Faisal uh, with his coronation, uh, because King Faisal really cared about poetry, right? He saw poetry as absolutely essential. And as a newcomer in the Iraqi scene, he really felt that he needed the support of Iraqi poets to give him political legitimacy. So he constantly cultivated um, uh, the the support through patronage, through um, uh, political connections, et cetera, of these poets who would be invited to um, come and read some lines often uh, in praise of him at various events. But what happens, the phrase I use in the book is, is that poetry became a sort of double-edged sword where an Iraqi poet would come and, and recite a poem of praise, praising Faisal, but he would do it in a kind of dangerous fashion, where on the one hand, you praise Faisal and, and his family for leading the Arab revolt against the Ottomans, uh, you know, for liberating the Arabs from Turkish despotism, uh, uh, for contributing to the Arab Renaissance, etc., 
um, which is all well and good, right? Faisal would have been nodding along to this, but then it starts to get dangerous when the poets would then begin to offer praise for what's to come in the future, right? And they would say things like, you know, uh, and we know that Faisal will continue to lead this glorious cause and to liberate Syria and to fight for the liberation of Palestine and to finish freeing uh, Iraq from, from the British yoke. And this is where Faisal's in a dilemma because Faisal... On the one hand, he knows that he's been installed on the throne by Britain. On the other hand, he's frustrated by his British advisors and, and is trying to walk a delicate uh, tightrope uh, here in, in terms of, of having political legitimacy in Iraq and the broader Arab world and in not alienating his British advisors. And, and the poets are using these public occasions to try and push Faisal in their own direction, in their nationalist direction. Um, which becomes a, a dangerous game, but it but it also sets the stage for a, a kind of public performance of poetry um, that that has this kind of uh, uh, purpose of either uh, uh, gently pushing a, a particular figure or outright embarrassing him, right? And and so poets begin to realize their power, the power of 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 creating a public spectacle that people are then going to to talk about did you hear what he said in front of Faisal did you hear how his face turned red and and that helps the the words of the poem to be to be uh, kind of remembered and memorialized because they're connected to specific events it's not a kind of abstract poem about power love or death right it's it's very much connected to uh, a particular moment in time in history I'm wondering if you could give us a particular example of a poet and a poem from this period that sort of illustrates all of this Yes, the, the one that, that came to mind that I was just thinking of was um, uh, at Faisal's coronation ceremony where Rashid al-Hashimi uh, was invited to give a poetic address um, and he... Uh, he did so, uh, he gives this, um, this talk, first praising Faisal, and then offering this kind of pointed, um, you know, warning almost that like, you know, we Iraqis have welcomed you because we know what you're going to do, which is to finish the job of liberation. Uh, because obviously, if you didn't do that, you would lose our support, right? So it's this, this clear threat uh, on this, uh, what's supposed to be a memorable, joyous eve for Faisal celebrating his coronation. It's a, it's a warning that like our loyalty to you is contingent uh, on what you're going to do. And as soon as the uh, he could he could tell everyone there could tell that Faisal was infuriated by this kind of public embarrassment. Uh, and so you know the poet Rashid al Hashmi immediately goes into hiding, um, and the you know newspapers refuse to publish the uh, the state newspapers that is. Uh, used to publish the full content of the poem because it's seen as, as too dangerous uh, in the public eye. But then uh, people remember the poem anyway, because, uh, you know, it's the, the Streisand effect, right, in the U.S., where the, the act of trying to suppress something uh, just furthers the population's curiosity, right? So, so everyone now hears that the newspapers are censoring it, um, uh, and it becomes a kind of heroic event. Uh, but there's there's a, I mean uh, I can think of a half dozen of these these kind of uh, events or occasions um, in in the 1920s. Most of them involving Faisal. There's there's another uh, famous event where um, Amin Arahani, who is a, a Lebanese um, 
literary figure who came to Iraq and had, had made some enemies because he'd been quite critical of Iraq, especially uh, of the Shia populations of Iraq. Uh, and Muhammad Bati al-Jawahiri uh, gives a speech that's a, a direct rebuke of Rouhani, um, or sorry, reads a poem that's a direct rebuke of Rouhani um, and gets the same kind of backlash there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So thinking about, so obviously now it's under British mandate, obviously we mentioned Faisal, but did the British fully appreciate the dangers of poetry, as you put it, in Iraq? No, I agree that they didn't. Uh, they really didn't appreciate the dangers of poetry. Um, I mean, you see fragments of it here and there. Um, I mean, I've seen in the British archives intelligence reports from 1920 when Britain is very worried about the the kind of developing revolutionary movement movement against them. There's one one intelligence report where uh, an Iraqi informant says, "I was at this mosque and the, this poet stood up and recited this uh, inflammatory poem, calling on the people to sacrifice their lives uh, for the sake of the nation." And even me, the informant, who's being paid by the colonial state. I was almost moved to join the revolution. And there's like exclamation points, hand drawn in the column that the um, uh, you know British officer was struck by this kind of danger. But in general, uh, they weren't very cognizant of the dangers of poetry. T to me, one of the, the more striking um, kind of examples of this is uh, the reality of press censorship in the 1920s. Uh, because what I found in, in looking at the newspapers and looking at why newspapers got fined or shut down or editors arrested, um, when, when newspapers criticized Britain in non-poetry, right, in, in a normal editorial, that's when the British officers got upset, right, because British officers are tasked with reading the newspapers every morning, they would find that editorial, uh, and they would complain and insist that the Ministry of Interior punish uh, the editor, or the, the, whoever wrote the article. Um, but they didn't care about the poetry so much because they couldn't read it. Uh, even someone like Gertrude Bell, who was the most accomplished Arabist uh, of the British um, uh, officials, there, whose Arabic skills were the best. Um, uh, I, I've found numerous letters in which she's talking about a big event and some poet gave up to got, got up to read it and she's writing to her father and she's like, the, the words were beautiful. I didn't understand any of it. Uh, so she understands Arabic, but she couldn't understand poetry, uh, certainly written. She had, I think, a, a Sudanese um, assistant uh, who obviously um, native Arabic speaker, and he would tell her for some reason he was not particularly struck by poetry and he would say, oh, it's just, um, you know, it's it's not really useful. So essentially, the British Ministry of Interior officers were not reading the poems that came out in newspapers. They were only reading the editorials. Um, I, I think when they did read the poems, they're just kind of scanning the title uh, and looking for keywords. Do they say something about England here? Um, and so if you have even the loosest metaphors, even if all Iraqis understand you're talking about Britain, it goes over the head of the British officers. Now, for the Iraqis working in the Ministry of Interior on the other hand, the situation is reversed. They didn't seem to care so much 
about if, whether an editorial is slightly critical of the Iraqi state, uh, because they figure like, eh, does anyone really care about editorials? But but the poems are often on the front page of the newspapers, right? The poem is often the selling point of the newspaper. Uh, it's what, you know, if you imagine how newspapers would be uh, kind of consumed by uh, larger audiences in Iraq, it's, it's likely to be at a coffee shop uh, where someone might read things aloud and they're going to read aloud the poem. That's what people want to hear. Uh, and so if a poem was critical of a particular Iraqi figure, that's when uh, kind of consequences were levied out uh, against the, the newspapers, the editors uh, and the poets themselves. So, so you see a sort of dichotomy here where the British only cared about the editorials. Uh, the Iraqis cared mostly about the poems. It's interesting because there's a kind of a Eurocentricism into how the British suppressed, isn't there? Yes, for sure. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think actually one of the more interesting aspects is, was the Gertrude Bell thing you highlighted, because I think like all of us, we've just been told, you know, she was a great Arabist. She spoke Arabic. She was, you know, as near native as you can be. And to hear that she didn't understand the poetry does make you wonder about who was actually assessing her. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Yes. Um. But the British do do something, I mean, because obviously they do arrange cultural visits from their other colony, India. Yes. Uh, and you actually, and I thought this was very surprising, I didn't hear about this episode until I read your book, uh, which is Tagore, who's obviously a yes. very famous Bengal language poet, considered a polymath, a big figure, a cultural and intellectual icon in that part of India. What's he doing in Baghdad? What's happening here? Well, so Tagore's visit to Baghdad, I believe, comes in, in December of 1932. So it was just after independence. Uh, obviously, Britain still has a strong presence in Iraq because the the kind of pivot from the mandate to independence is very much stage managed and the British advisors are still there. There's a treaty put in place. Um, but but the visit itself, um, I think, is, is more of the initiative of Faisal uh, than his British advisors. Uh, uh, because again, Faisal really cared about poetry. He cared about this sort of cultural phenomenon. Uh, and he cared a lot about Tagore. I think in a lot of ways, Tagore fit Faisal's kind of purpose. Faisal, um, you know, obviously Faisal, is, he's an Arab, he's, he's a Muslim, he's Sunni Muslim, uh, but he's very sort of cognizant of the internal dynamics in Iraq. Uh, he's cognizant of his need to appeal to the, the Shia majority population. Uh, he wants to make sure that he's, he also has the loyalty of uh, Kurds and uh, Turkmen and Jews and Christians in Iraq. Uh, and so he's interested in cultivating this kind of cosmopolitan, tolerant environment but at the same time, he's aware of the fact that he owes his position ultimately to Britain. Uh, and so, you know, he wants to, at the same time, you know, not, not, um, that his ideology, he doesn't want his ideology to be so cosmopolitan and tolerant that it's, that's sort of confused with um, embracing European secularism or, or something like that. Uh, and so he sees he sees a lot of advantage in promoting a kind of um, cosmopolitan Eastern spirit, right? This idea that there's this kind of spiritual awakening uh, uh, movement that that's going to sort of combine modernity and science and and new achievements with this kind of cultural authenticity that's somehow distinctive of the East in distinction to the West. Uh, and Tagore really symbolizes that in a lot of ways um, uh, for Faisal, right? There's, there's an advantage in bringing in this Indian figure who's been critical of 
British colonialism in India, um, who's not a Muslim, but still, you know, stands in, in brotherhood with, uh, with, with Muslims in India and elsewhere. Um, and so, so Faisal invites him, he comes to visit, uh, there's, there's, um, he, Tagore has a kind of kindred spirit in Jamil Sidki as a Howie, uh, a prominent Iraqi poet from from the late Ottoman era, who's who's still alive in the in the 30s, who who's in a lot of ways I think saw himself as a uh, Tagore-like figure uh, in Iraq. Um, even I cultivated the same kind of um, uh, physical appearance. I would say. Was Tagore ever translated into Arabic at that point? That you know of? Not that I know of. Um, I'm trying to think there were I've seen poems praising him uh in Arabic uh even before uh even before the visit um but I don't think I recall seeing any of his work translated into Arabic uh although I won't swear by that and what actually happens on this visit because you write about an episode where he's a guest of honor at a dinner and there's lots of different Iraqi poets there what actually happens here so uh, Tagore gives a speech, reads a poem uh, praising uh, Faisal. You know, uh, it's it's a poem kind of in praise of of tolerance and cosmopolitanism of of everything that uh, Faisal is trying to do in Iraq. Um, Zahawi, the the admirer of of Tagore, who I mentioned, recites a poem praising Tagore for all of these reasons as well. Uh, but then another Iraqi poet stands up. Muhammad Bashat al-Athari, um, who had a more of a nationalist line. Um, and he was put off by Tagore's uh, kind of praise for this, um, uh, for tolerance and harmony between nations and, and for Zahawi's indication of that as well. And, and his views, Zahawi, I should mention, had a kind of complex and contentious reputation because he had been seen as close to the the British state for certain periods of time. At other periods of time, he was kind of out of league uh, with with uh, the British. Um, but that that connection between Zahawi and Britain was still there. Now Zahawi is linked to Tagore, uh, and even though Tagore was critical of colonialism, the kind of appeal to a brotherhood between nations struck a chord among some of the uh, Iraqi nationalist writers who who thought like, well, what do you exactly do you mean by uh, harmony between nations, between all nations? Does that mean we're supposed to sort of uh, forgive Britain for everything? Are we are we now criticizing uh, the the revolutionaries, rebels, whatever you want to call them, who fought against Britain? Is this is it an attack? Is it a kind of a commitment to nonviolence that that becomes an attack on the nationalist movement? Uh, and so Authory got up and and uh, read a poem that was supposed to be praising Tagore, but ended up being very critical uh, of this call for uh, communal harmony. Um, because, you know, Authory was perceiving the call for community harmony as a kind of rebuke of anti-colonialism. Um, and Tagore didn't know Arabic, so Authory reads this speech, it's, you know, sounds like it's a poem of praise, and so he clapped along with everyone else, but there's the kind of the simmering embarrassment from Zahawi as he's watching, uh, because obviously the, the Iraqis know Faisal's embarrassed, um, because everyone knows what is said, but it's a kind of echo of, of what happened um, 
in front of a lot of British diplomats earlier, where you hear the kind of musical rhythm of the poem, but you have no idea what's being said. And you just assume it must be nice because that's what you're supposed to do on an occasion like this. But in fact, Iraqi poets over the past decade had kind of perfected this art of taking these occasions and, and using uh, the opportunity to, um, you know, exact their revenge or to, to inflict embarrassment uh, to, to make their message heard somehow. It, so did Tagore never realize that this was what was happening? No, as far as I know, he did not. Right. And it, and it, it, that, that particular incident, uh, I mean, I think everyone, I think Faisal and others, how we decided that it's, it's just best if we sort of pretend it didn't happen. Right. No need to embarrass the guests. I feel like there could be like an entire comedy show just based around this topic. <laughs> yes, for sure. Right. <laughs> so, Moving forward then, what has happened to Iraq's revolutionary tradition of poetry in a sense? I mean, obviously since then you've had numerous regimes. You had the Ba'ath Party, you had Saddam, you had 2003 invasion, and now you have what we have. So where are, what's ha- what happened to it along the way? So my argument is that, I mean, that certainly there's still a, a vibrant tradition of Iraqi poetry. Uh, there's still kind of... Um, radical revolutionary messages being being articulated by poets. Uh, but my argument is that the kind of um, radical rebel poetry, revolutionary poetry that I'm talking about in the book really is limited to a particular moment in time. Um, I mean, I think there's, you can see echoes of this in the, certainly in the, um, Arabic poetry tradition in in a certain other context. The one that comes to mind the, the most strongly is is uh, Palestine. Maha Nasser has written about this in her brilliant book Brothers Apart, uh, especially of the the Palestinian poets like uh, Samuel Qasim and uh, Mahmoud Darwish, who became citizens of Israel and then also used kind of Arabic verse as a way to undercut uh, the the Israeli authorities um, in the, in the 1960s and beyond. Uh, but in in, in Iraq, uh, I think that the role of poetry and its ability to function as this kind of dissident language of social protest in public uh, really begins to change and really uh, changes in fundamental ways in the early 1960s. Uh, And I think it happens for a couple of reasons. The first is that the political dynamics change. Uh, I don't want to sort of... uh, um, undercut the reality of uh, censorship and oppression under the British mandate and then later under the Hashemite monarchy because dissident poets were punished, arrested, imprisoned, uh, exiled in, in certain cases. Um, but I describe their kind of game, their, their, their practice of poetry in this period as a kind of dangerous game because it's a game in which there's, there's a line drawn by the state that like you can go up to this line, just don't cross it. And the game is, okay, what if I put my foot on the line, right? What if my criticism of the state goes right up until that line, but no further? And then what if I just go a few inches beyond it, right? So there's there's an expectation that like you can, you can get away with a little bit of criticism, just don't go too far. Um, I think certainly under, under the Baathist regime, the, the repressive nature of the state intensifies to the extent that you can't play games anymore, right? Um, uh, it wouldn't be tolerated. Uh, and so um, most of the, the kind of leading poets from this, uh, from, from the, certainly the era of the 1958 revolution uh, and the early 1960s, they're all exiled uh, after 63. Um, uh, so 
poetry no longer becomes something that can be done in public as this kind of rebuke to the state uh, for political reasons. Uh, the other major development I think is aesthetic. Uh, I think you see a major shift uh, when you see this kind of aesthetic shift from neoclassical poetry to free verse poetry. Uh, and I always have to be careful about how I frame this because I'm always worried about sounding like stodgy or conservative. Um, you know, personally, my my own taste in uh, English language culture. I mean, I tend to like kind of experimental and avant-garde things, and I'm I'm very much not uh, sort of committed to classical music and Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson and and those kind of uh, poets and writers. Um, so so I don't want to be critical. I I actually really enjoy free verse free verse poetry in in Arabic. A lot of the uh, pioneers of this form of poetry were Iraqis, like Barashakar Sayed, Nazik al Malaka, and others. Um, but it does, uh, I think have ramifications for the ability of poetry to function in this kind of public environment. Because there's something about neoclassical poetry, the kind of straight meter and rhyme of it that's conducive to a public uh, reading. It's conducive to chanting in the streets. Um, it, it's conducive to stand, so someone standing uh, at a podium while the crowd uh, raises their fists in the air and chants alongside it, right? It ro royals the emotions in that way. Uh, whereas free verse poetry, it, it, you know, it's it can still certainly be an oral tradition, but but it, it tends to be read a little bit more. So it's it's more about wh what journals it's printed in, uh, the kind of um, uh, book publications. It becomes a slightly more private affair, um, or um, when it is read aloud, it's not you know you you imagine like a a quieter coffee house, right, rather than people chanting and yelling alongside it, um, and so. In this shift from neoclassical poetry to free verse poetry, I think you start to see poets, no matter how radical or revolutionary their ideologies and ideas, I think you start to see poets functioning more like intellectuals uh, rather than these figures that can kind of uh, totally transverse the divide between high culture and mass culture. Um, it, it becomes more, I mean, it's there's still, still in the free verse era, Poetry is far more important in Iraq and has far more resonance among uh, broad social classes than poetry does in the U.S., for example. But I think you see a shift in that direction um, uh, in comparison to the way that punk poetry functioned, especially in public spaces and public settings uh, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And even now, it's still very popular. I mean it's still very much tied to politics. I mean, obviously, in your book, you quote, you go with that example of the young poet, in I think it was in Karbala or Najaf? The, in Najaf. The yeah. Najaf, a really like traditional Shi'i city, and he's reciting a communist poem. Um, but of course, across Iraq, you will find people, various political factions even, having their own poets as well. That's still a thing. Yes, right, for sure. And there were, uh, I mean, there were certainly... There were certainly still, I mean, poetry continued to play a really important role, even in the in the Baathist era and the, the era of Saddam Hussein. Um, but it it was no longer used in a dissident manner, right? Um, I mean, I personally, I I wouldn't, I don't have interest in in writing about that era uh, of of Iraqi poetry, partly because I find the kind of uh, Baathist poetry 
a little bit stilted. It's a little bit boring. It's it's really not very pretty. Um, but also the the you know, I mean, the idea of a praise poem written from a previous era in general people don't want to read that right people in the in the contemporary moment don't want to like why do we want to read someone praising some figure from 50 years ago or 70 years ago uh to me it's it's really only interesting if that praise is kind of couched in this kind of uh, double-edged language and it, it reminds me of episodes from kind of cla the classical um arabic medieval tradition uh mutanabi and others who use their kind of praise poems as a way of uh of, of kind of articulating their own greatness or offering a kind of veiled warning or threat uh, to the leaders they were ostensibly praising. So that tradition always existed. But like when you get to um, a more authoritarian regime, uh, that kind of praise poem loses some of the more interesting aspects of the kind of performance itself, in my view. But I'd imagine it changed a lot after 2003. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does. Certainly, it's it's not as dangerous anymore. Um, you know, to my knowledge, I, I have seen less effort of, I mean, it, you know, you have the same, uh, I mean, after 2003, you would have the same kind of basic dynamic as you had in the British mandate, right, where the now the Americans are standing in uh, in the place of the Brits. Um, and uh, the, the kind of earliest um, Iraqi political leaders from 2004 onwards would kind of be tarred with the same kind of hint of collaboration as, as Prince Faisal were, right? They had to walk the kind of tightrope of not alienating the American occupation authorities, but also um, uh, not alienating their publics either. Um, but I, I certainly don't see, um, I mean, I don't think that the Iraqi politicians, the Iraqi state in the early 2000s saw poetry as a set as something that was as essential to their political legitimacy as say uh, Faisal did in the 1920s so you don't see poetry kind of uh mobilized and and marshaled in the same way and I think also just the intervening decades um transform the social status of the poet I mean really like in the 1920s the poet the the prominent poet were also uh, often leading religious scholars. They were politicians. They were sort of uh, men of many talents and the, the kind of pinnacle of political and social elites. They just also had mass followings and, and mass audience as well. Um, but the nature of poetry has changed by the time we get to the 2000s. And, and a dissident poet is not going to have that kind of high political or social status anymore. Uh, and so even as they're critical of the state, they lack the kind of, um, the, they, they lack the status to really kind of exploit that dual nature of being both well-connected and uh, um, that kind of prominent political dissidents. And so it's harder uh, to, to sort of find the public opportunity um, to, to make their mark, right? To bury the knife in someone's back uh, through their words. Okay, so obviously you've since you've done this research, I'm sort of now wondering, particularly in the West, now that you're sort of opening historians' eyes to the potentiality of studying what poetry can tell us about 
history in this region and in possibly in others as well. So what does, you know, studies now look like? What research is going on around you? Are people now really taking this up as a subject to study? Um, I've seen a number of uh, a number of works recently that that use poetry in in really interesting ways uh, as a kind of uh, window in history. Uh, I certainly would not in, in most many of these cases it's me taking inspiration from them rather than vice versa. I mentioned before Maha Nasser, uh, whose work on uh, uh, poetry in Palestine, especially among Palestinian citizens of, of Israel, has been was was hugely influential for me um, and has um, I think. Um, I've, I've tried to do similar things in, in uh, writing about the, the use of poetry in Iraq. So you do see, I mean, I have seen some, uh, some more openness to using poetry as this window. Um, it ha I mean, I, I could also mention um, a, a number of scholars who have, who have done similar things uh, with poetry in Egypt, but there's, there's kind of different, um, different contexts for these various things. I mean, in, in Egypt, for example, um, you had a much more vibrant scene in colloquial poetry from a much earlier date. Um, and so in, in Egypt in the early 20th centuries, you do see more of a divide between the high culture of neoclassical poetry and the kind of mass culture of colloquial poetry. Um, but there, there, I've seen a number of interesting works by uh, Ziad Fahmi and others um, uh, using colloquial poetry um, as a historical source about what mass audiences um, are are thinking and talking about um, how they're conceiving the nation, how they're, they're talking about colonialism, et cetera. Um, but also, you know, I think, I think there's, um, I, I wouldn't say it's gone, it's gone all the way. I mean, I still find myself talking to, to a number of scholars a lot who will say, you know, I'm a little embarrassed, but like when I read something, when I read a book in Arabic uh, and the, the, the author, you know, cites some line of poetry to make his case, I just skip over the poetry, right? Because there's a sense of like, you know, it often seems frivolous um, uh, or, or like window dressing. But I think in the original Arabic, like often the poetry is the key, right? It's there to, to sort of make the claim. Uh, and it's not just kind of window dressing uh, to, to um, a point being made uh, otherwise. So there is a sense that, you know, I mean, poetry, it takes a little bit more work. Historians are working through, you know, tons of sources. And sometimes it is easy to just kind of gloss over uh, and not read uh, the poetry there. I mean, to me, I, I still find, I mean, when, when I was writing this book and first uh, pitching my, my talks at conferences uh, and starting to pitch the idea of the book to various, to, to editors and to book presses, um, I, I always had this kind of sense of frustration because I'd, I'd uh, you know, mention the topic or the title uh, and often the response was, oh, you, okay, so you should be in literary studies, right? Um, you should talk to this person, right? I, I deal more with history. Uh, and I'm, I'm a historian, right? I, I was, my PhD is in history. I, I teach in history. Um, you know, I, I'm, I do work now that's not uh, using poetry. But so my, my point was that poetry can be a historical source and can provide this kind of historical window uh, to this moment in time. Uh, but sometimes it's very difficult to break to break through the kind of um, uh, categories that we have in the West where poetry is literature and that's something different, fundamentally different from the kind of sources we use for history. 
Um, so there's, I think there's still, I still have some frustration with the, um, you know, inability to sort of open our minds to think about uh, the kind of the weakness of some of these categories and, and the, the, the fact that they might be drawn or might be kind of conceived in a Eurocentric fashion and might not function the same way in, in, in all places and time. Uh, on the other hand, there, there has been a lot of exciting uh, attempts from a number of historians to, um, to use poetry in these ways. Yeah, it might be an interesting thing as well when you're like at dinner parties and you've mentioned that you've done poetry. They start asking you to recite poems. Go, no, 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 I'm a historian, not a literary. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. I mean, and I, you know, it's a little bit embarrassing for me too because I, ha I mean, I, I don't, I don't dislike poetry, but I've, I was never before this book. I was never uh, saw myself as like uh, I would never describe my my primary cultural interest as as poetry i wasn't a great kind of aficionado of of poetry in english um uh so like you know i i was drawn to poetry because because of its utility as a historical source that's not to say i don't like it i do i did end up loving a lot of the poetry that i went through um uh but it's not um you know i i'm i'm not coming at it from an aesthetic angle where where my main concern is the the beauty of the line or the verses. Kevin Jones, thank you for talking to us at Memo Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And for our audience, thank you for tuning in. Please do tune in next time for more Memo Conversations. This was Middle East Monitor Conversations, brought to you by the Middle East Monitor in London.